Before we begin with this week's episode, we would just like to welcome our newest patron, Mark Moran. Thank you for becoming a part of the show. It's very much appreciated. You too can become a patron of Nordic True Crime. Find us at patreon.com forward slash Nordic True Crime or click on the link in the show notes. By definition, an orphanage is supposed to be a safe and secure place that will both protect and nurture children who have been separated from their biological parents. But what if the person responsible for a child's care in what should be their safe haven turns out to be their worst nightmare? This is Nordic True Crime. Sweden was the first country in the world which made it illegal to strike or spank children. It was in 1958 when the law came into effect in schools, meaning that the teachers were no longer allowed to hand out physical punishments to pupils. And just eight years later, the law stated that it would also be illegal for parents to discipline their children using physical violence. The final part of this law was introduced in 1979. It was decided that it would from then on be illegal to hit, strike or violate a child in any form. Today, Sweden is one of the most generous countries in the world in regards to parental leave, where both parents are entitled to 480 days of paid parental leave for each child. This ruling was established in order for both the child and the parents to spend as much time as possible together during a child's early development in order to form a strong, tight family bond. However, in the early part of the 20th century, it was a completely different story. In the beginning of the 1900s, a new idea took hold in Swedish society, and it was believed to be the solution to a lot of the country's problems. 
this new ideology was institutions. Between 1919 and 1929, 150 new orphanages were built and by the 1940s there were over 300, which was an extremely high number for a country with a population of just 6.3 million at that time. During the 1930s and the 1940s, unemployment increased dramatically and poverty became the norm. In order to try and gain employment, people left the countryside and moved to the bright lights of the big cities. More and more children were being born out of wedlock, which was very much frowned upon at this time, to say the least. It was somewhat of a scandal, and mothers would often feel that they had no choice other than to give their children up and leave them in the care of an orphanage. The Swedish authorities sometimes took an active role in forcefully separating children from their parents in cases which they considered to be a morally wrong environment for a child to grow up in. For instance, it was believed that criminal tendencies and psychological problems were hereditary, so it was therefore considered to be of high importance to remove those children from their homes and place them in an institution so that they would grow up to become acceptable members of society. Children during this time were supposed to be seen, but not heard, and were not treated as individuals. In 1935, one of the biggest orphanages in the country was constructed in Sweden's second biggest city, Gothenburg. It was called Vidchers Orphanage. None of the staff members had any education or experience in the care of children. But back then, this was not considered to be of much importance. The ideology was that the children should be brought up with discipline, pureness and with high morals in order to have any chance of receiving a new, fresh start in life. The three main things that the authorities considered the children to be in need of. The home consisted of ten white buildings, each named after different birds, such as the owl, eagle, dove, and so on. Children from the age of one to their late teens lived at the orphanage at any one time, and they all slept in dormitories, 
where they had their own bed and a small locker where they could store some personal belongings. The boys and girls slept in different rooms with a so-called safe distance between them. The children were not allowed to wear their own clothes and were instead given a uniform that distinguished them from other children in Gothenburg, meaning that everyone knew that they were from the orphanage. Two of the buildings belonged to the administration, and there was also the solitary building, where sick children would stay to minimize the risk of spreading infection. But in truth, it would really only be used as a place for children who misbehaved and who were considered to be in need of punishment. A place where unimaginable abuse would take place. In the beginning of the 1940s, two brothers were moved to Vidsjär by child services. Bengt was six years at the time and Kent just two. In an interview many years later, they recalled the abuse that took place at the orphanage. The abuse started on their first morning. The boys were forced to stand under an ice-cold shower whilst two female staff members roughly scrubbed their bodies with coarse scrubbing brushes until it felt like their skin was on fire. When Kent was a little bit older, he was locked in the dreaded isolation building, which consisted of a small room with locked windows, a bed, a chair, and a small table. During the first 24 hours, he was tied to the bed with belts. On the second day, he was removed from the restraints, but he had to remain inside the room, alone, for another 14 days. He was also locked up in a small shoe closet underneath the stairs. Initially, they would keep the lights off for the first few hours, leaving Kent alone once again in total darkness. When the lights were finally switched on, he was made to polish 24 pairs of shoes to perfection before being allowed to leave the tiny room, a task that would take him six to seven hours to complete. At this time, Kent was only five years old. Because of the constant abuse and stress he endured, Kent started to wet his bed at night As a punishment for the bedwetting, the staff made him wear a dress. This led to Kent being teased and laughed at by his friends, 
and he of course became very angry and ended up in a fight. As punishment for fighting, Kent was beaten up by two staff members. Despite the abuse he suffered, Kent would grow up and become a successful businessman who loved to give so much of his time to help people in need. Sadly, just three weeks after the interview about his time at Vidjar, Kent committed suicide. Another person who stayed at Vidjar was a boy who we have decided to call Åke. Åke's mother was sick and had to spend time at the hospital. His father was a heavy drinker and was therefore unable to take care of Åke and his brother. They were both placed under the care of the Vidjar orphanage from time to time when their mother was receiving treatment at the hospital. The two brothers hated every second of their stay and one day decided that they would run away. They made their getaway but were caught by staff members just a few kilometers from Vidjar. The boys were taken back to the home where they received a brutal beating as punishment for trying to escape. When Åke was 13 years old, a doctor wrote an expert analysis of the boy. In this, he described him as being a very highly charged, somewhat primitive and environmentally damaged boy whose future prognosis was extremely uncertain. He recommended that Åke be placed in a school for the moronic the term used in those days, until he was 18 years old. However, there was nothing wrong with Åke. Everyday life at Vidja consisted of constant verbal and physical abuse from staff members. For example, children were often told that their parents didn't want anything to do with them. In one occasion, a girl wasn't hungry at dinner time and was force-fed by staff until she vomited. As a punishment, she was made to eat her own vomit. Another girl had wet her bed during the night and was made to sleep in her wet soiled sheets for the next night to teach her a lesson. Unfortunately, the abuse wasn't limited to verbal and violent attacks. The children also suffered from sexual abuse. During shower time, some of the male carers would soap up the children's private parts and force them to do the same to them. 
One of the doctors even force-fed some children medication and would perform unnecessary gynecological examinations. About 50 kilometers from Bidjär, there was another orphanage in a place called Skärsbo. It was originally built in 1905 as a privately owned mansion, but in 1955, child services took over the property and converted it into an institution for boys. The superintendent was a man who lived for order and discipline and used intimidation to get the results he wanted. Everyone was afraid to cross him, even the staff. They didn't dare to question him, even when they thought something wasn't morally right, resulting in them turning a blind eye to the goings-on at the home. He had a military approach to life at the orphanage and believed that the best way of fostering the young boys was through hard work. So from Monday to Friday, they received school lessons from about 8 o'clock in the morning until just after lunchtime. The rest of the day was spent carrying out forced manual labor, such as cutting the grass and removing weeds from the flower beds. According to some of the former children who used to live there, they were also hired out to neighbors as cheap labor. But the boys didn't receive any money for their work. They were basically treated as slaves. According to eyewitnesses, the superintendent had an inner rage that he released on the children every now and then. He would call a child into his office where he would beat them up. For some of the boys... Instead of hitting them, he made examinations of their private parts. He made them pull down their pants in his office and would touch them. None of the boys dared to say no because of the fear of a brutal beating that would inevitably come their way. One boy once had his sternum broken and another had his eardrum burst after being punched by staff members. They were all living under constant fear. Another commonly used punishment was to be locked up in the basement, where the boys would just sit and wait to be let out again time spent in the basement varied depending on what mood the staff member was in at the time.
as well as the orphanages. There was also a large number of foster parents in the city. But like the institutions, there were no background checks or transparency required by the authorities. Anyone could become a foster parent with relative ease. This, unfortunately, led to children being taken in by adults who had no interest whatsoever in helping them. They just wanted to get free labor. But sometimes, the reasons for fostering children were more sinister than receiving free labor. Panilla was just five years old when the police, together with the social services, knocked on her door. She and her two siblings were taken from their parents, who had addiction problems, and were placed in separate homes. The siblings were placed so far apart that they had no chance of maintaining any contact with each other. Vanilla was moved to a house in the countryside. The family had a daughter of their own, and it became apparent that Panilla would not be treated in the same way as the family's biological daughter. She was treated awfully, whilst their own daughter seemed to be able to do nothing wrong. The family were very strict, and Penilla was beaten on several occasions. Often, the beatings happened at the dinner table, which led to her being very nervous and anxious during mealtimes, making it very hard for her to swallow her food. The foster family force-fed Penilla and made her finish every last drop of food on her plate. If she threw up, she had to eat the vomit before she could leave the table. Due to the fear and anxiety she was suffering from, Panilla started wetting her bed and her foster mother reacted to this by pushing her face down into her wet sheets as a punishment. She was also held against her will under icy cold showers and was on occasions locked in a small room. All Pernilla wanted was to be loved. One day, Penilla was out walking near a cow pasture, together with her foster father. Since she was a city girl, she was a bit afraid of the big animals in the country, so she grabbed her foster father's hand to feel that bit more safe as they got closer to the cows in the field. But instantly, she felt a sharp 
pain shooting through her hand and arm. Her foster father had taken a firm grip of the electric fence with his other hand, allowing the electricity to shoot through his body into Panilla's tiny hand to teach her a lesson. The lesson being that she was never to hold his hand again. When Penilla was nine years old, her foster family bought a summer cabin. It was a lovely little place close to a lake and the family would spend the summers and most weekends there. A male relative of the family also used to stay at the cabin and he started taking a special interest in Panilla. He would sit at the dinner table in front of everyone and touch her legs, gradually moving his hands to her private parts. Everybody saw what was going on, but nobody did or said anything about it. They just let it happen. Events escalated, and when Panilla was just 12 years old, the man raped her. When she turned 14, she refused to come to the summer cabin. This made her foster mother furious, and she severely beat her. Panilla fled the house and went to the police for help. Her foster mother was later charged and convicted of assault. Many of the children who were placed in these institutions or foster homes suffered many difficulties throughout their adult lives. The mental and physical scars were too much to take for some, and many decided to end their lives or turn to drugs to numb the pain. And since almost none of them had received any sort of education, getting a job became extremely difficult, resulting in some turning to a life of crime to make a living for themselves. The orphanages in Sweden were closed in 1980, where it was estimated at the time that around 100,000 children had been raised behind the walls of these institutions. But the feeling of betrayal towards the authorities who were supposed to protect them as children when they were unceremoniously dumped in these orphanages and foster homes, burned deep inside the former residence. They wanted justice for the abuse that they had endured, but nothing happened. 
the first time anyone took real interest in the children's play was in 2005, when a TV documentary was made about the institutions. The documentary focused mainly on the orphanage for boys in Huashbo, but also told the story of children who had been placed in foster homes. This documentary had a massive impact on Swedish society. The politician responsible for the public welfare of Sweden at the time was the social democrat Morgan Johansson. He said at the time, Of course the state must give an unconditional apology for all the abuse these children went through during this time. And he put together a committee that would investigate the history of abuse which went on throughout the years, as well as decide if a monetary indemnity should be given out to former residents. However, the following year was an election year, and in 2006, the power had shifted from the Social Democrats to the Conservative Party, and the investigation landed on the desk of the Christian Democrat, Maria Larsson. She decided to look further into the matter. But it wasn't until 2011 that she had reached a decision. She said, After careful judgment and after having considered all questions, we have reached the conclusion that we cannot give out any monetary damages. This is because it can't be done in any secure or fair manner. Although this was a blow, a public apology was made by the government. In a ceremony at the City Hall in Stockholm, the Swedish spokesman, Per Westerberg, who held the highest position a person can be elected to, even higher than of the Prime Minister, spoke to the nation. He said, The Swedish government would today like to apologize to all of the women and men who have been affected. It is an apology without reservation or mitigation. The neglect you have been objected to is a disgrace to Sweden. But many were still understandably angry at the fact that the government refused to offer any monetary compensation. And so the question was once again raised and in November of 2012, a new temporary law was written that would allow compensation to be awarded to the abused children. Many felt like a weight had been lifted from their shoulders, and after all these years, their voices were finally being heard. What they had gone through had been both acknowledged and condemned 
by the authorities. The money itself wasn't of any particular importance to most, but it was another way of symbolizing acknowledgement of their plight. The amount awarded to each victim was 250,000 Swedish crowns, around 21,000 British pounds, and the criteria to be able to receive the compensation was that the abuse must have taken place sometime between 1920 and 1980, and it must have been of a serious nature. A compensation committee, which consisted of 16 people, was put together to judge who met the criteria in order to receive the money. It was estimated that about 20,000 people would apply and around 1.2 billion Swedish crowns was budgeted to the committee by the government. All the applicants were summoned for a 30-minute interview where they were asked to tell their stories. This, of course, brought up some horrible, sometimes deeply buried memories for the victims who had to relive moments of their childhood they would most likely prefer to forget. It was, however, necessary in order for the committee to determine who should receive compensation. But there was one problem. The way in which the criteria was constructed made it quite difficult for the victims to receive the monetary damages they were due. Firstly, they had to prove that they had been taken into foster care, and to do so, they needed to present the actual decision from the authority in question that placed them there. One woman, who had been placed in a foster home in the 1950s, was continually raped from the age of six years until she was 16 by her foster mother's 30-year-old son. She presented documentation showing that she had been placed in the foster home, but because the actual decision had gone missing from the county in question's archives, the committee denied her application for damages. The second criteria was that the abuse must have taken place between 1920 and before 1980. Panilla, who had been raped by a relative of her foster family, was also denied compensation. This was because she was placed in care in 1979 and the abuse of a more serious nature had taken place after 1980, so she was therefore ineligible. The constant beatings and being pushed face down 
in soiled sheets, which occurred prior to 1980, was not considered to be serious enough abuse. The criteria in regards to the seriousness of the abuse suffered was the hardest factor to decide on. In the investigation leading up to the public apology, it was made very clear that the investigators would look through a child's perspective when they decided what should be considered to be serious neglect. They used all the scientific reports that had been made available regarding child abuse and went with the modern definition of what constitutes abuse. But when the government formed the criteria for the committee, they chose to disregard the modern definition of neglect and abuse and instead ordered that the investigators should go with what was considered to be normal at the time. And this, of course, meant that there would be a vast difference in opinion of what was considered abuse then compared to what is considered as abuse now. Because of this, a lot of people were denied compensation. The criteria had been criticized by the investigators, but that criticism had been removed from the proposition that was later given to the government, which would result in the temporary law. Another unusual decision was taken. The victims didn't have a right to appeal a denial of compensation something you should be automatically granted according to the European Court of Human Rights. But the government believed that since this compensation had been extraordinary, the ordinary principles of the right to appeal should be disregarded. Panilla along with others who had also been denied compensation, sued the Swedish government for 100,000 Swedish crowns each for breaking the European Convention ruling on the right to appeal. Of the 5,300 people who applied for compensation, 54% were denied. Only about half of the 1.2 billion crowns that were budgeted by the Swedish government was handed out. The rest went back to the state. And this extremely high number of rejections really stood out compared to other countries. At the end of the 1990s, a documentary revealed that the children of the St. Joseph's Orphanage in Kilkenny, Ireland, 
had been sexually abused. After the program was aired, more and more victims came forward. This led to the Irish government publicly apologising to the victims and subsequently offering criminal damages. The process continued up until 2009 and by then, 95% of the people that applied were granted compensation. Only 5% were denied in comparison to Sweden's 54%. Furthermore, the amount of money given in damages was more than double of what was issued in Sweden. In Norway, where similar abuse had occurred, compensation was given both by the government and the actual county where the crimes have been committed. They also had different criteria where a graded scale was developed that awarded different amounts depending on how severe the neglect or abuse had been. But the government fixed the lowest amount that could be paid out, so victims received at least 320,000 Swedish crowns, around 27,000 British pounds, and only 22% were denied compensation. So why was the monetary compensation in Sweden constructed to make it so difficult for victims to fulfill the criteria? Was this an elaborate scheme concocted by the government to make them appear to be doing the right thing, but in reality, doing the exact opposite. None of the politicians in charge had answers to these questions. In the end, the thousands of neglected children had once again been betrayed by their own government. A government which treated them with contempt when children and as adults. Hi, this is Minna from True Crime Finland. Ah, Finland, so peaceful and safe. There isn't even any crime there, right? Wrong. 
Join me every two weeks in discovering the dark side of the land of a thousand lakes. Everything from human trafficking and Ponzi schemes to double homicide and child abuse. From the forgotten and lesser known to the legendary and infamous Finnish cases, the podcast will be sure to offer something for everyone. You can find True Crime Finland on iTunes, Pocket Casts, Podcast Addict, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Michael, host of the Murder Mile True Crime Podcast, which was nominated as one of the best British true crime podcasts of 2018 is based on my five-star rated guided walk and features more than 300 untold, unsolved and long-forgotten murders, all set within one square mile of London's West End. So if you love hearing about new cases for the first time, all cases through a fresh pair of ears and classic cases with a twist, all researched using the original declassified police investigation files, written using first-hand accounts, and recorded using authentic sounds from the murder location itself, then Murder Mile is just for you. Download the Murder Mile True Crime podcast on iTunes, Acast, or your favourite podcast platform every Thursday. Thank you for listening, and stay safe.